welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. So, no surprise, we're in challenging times. Uh, No surprise, the Holy Spirit is not anxious about the challenging times we're in. So, what does he know that if we knew, we wouldn't be as anxious as perhaps we are? Well, the book of Revelation gives us some sense of that. It is written, as you know, uh, Darren introduced this for us last week at the tail end of the first century, when literally all hell was breaking loose on the church. It was being crushed. It was in the, in the, in the olive press, and the church was being forced into shapes and forms uh, that it had not previously imagined. And the question was, Where's, where's Jesus in all of this? The, the, what do we do? How do we respond to this? And as is typical of the Holy Spirit, uh, he provided for his people kind of point by point uh, directions as to how to manage the stressors of persecution, of family dissolution, of challenges with unemployment. All of those things are not new to us. They were part of the life of the church right right back from the beginning. Uh, and the empire in all its weight was coming down on, on the church. John, who wrote this magnificent vision of Jesus, is in exile. The, the, the Roman church knows better than to, or excuse me, the Roman empire knows better than to make him a martyr. So they send him off to Patmos, hoping that there his um, influence would be diminished um, out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, as is often the case, uh, what they intended for harm, God used for good. And please notice, that's what he always does. That's what he always does. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something for me this morning. Uh, remember, I asked you to pick up a, a pen and paper, a journal, some crayons. Uh, and, and, and if you're with family, if you're with friends, with roommates, maybe you can take a few minutes uh, in, the, in, the, in the minutes that follow. But I want you to make a list and consider what are the things you're carrying? What are the things that are weighing you down? What are the weights that you bring to the table this morning. This is what framed the letter that we'll be looking at, this, this, this revelation that we'll be looking at. That was the context. So what is the context that you bring to this conversation? In fact, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes, and I'd invite you to just to take uh, some time and maybe even prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, it's not just this, it's also this. Um, and, and just make a list of those. Would you do that? And then we'll come back and, and, and keep on going. If you're able to, take a moment to pause the podcast, pray, write your list, and then resume when you're ready. All right. Um, hope you got your list. Here's the question. Are you looking at Jesus through your list? Or are you looking at your list through the lens of Jesus? That's what John invites us into in this early part. This this vision of Revelation is 
mysterious, it's challenging, it's very difficult, as Darren explained last week, to read it uh, for, for, for meaning. Uh, it assumes familiarity with a particular uh, art form of literature called apocalyptic. Uh, it, it, the closest we can get is the avant-garde uh, movements of the 30s and the 40s, or if you can think through the cartoon uh, monster stuff that came out of Japan uh, following the Second World War, Godzilla, and so on and so forth. You see these grotesque images. Um, that's kind of like apocalyptic, but it's driven by the Spirit with a grand uh, understanding. Mm, don't panic. God's got this. Uh, might not look like you want it to look, but he's, he's working on something here, and you don't want to miss it by praying nostalgic prayer. So apocalyptic, not something we're really familiar with. It's one of the reasons why most of the time we get Revelation wrong, because we view it as simply prophetic. It's not. It's apocalyptic. That's a different kind of literature. The other problem with Revelation um, is that it assumes a thoroughgoing knowledge of the Old Testament. There's about 409 verses in the book of Revelation, 513 allusions to the Old Testament. No quotes. So John is assuming you have been soaked in the Old Testament so that when he kind of winks and nods and alludes to something, he knows you're going to get it. Problem? We don't know the Old Testament as well as he did, so we don't get it all the time. And so Darren and I are going to try as we go through this to kind of point out some of the more obvious ones uh, so that you can kind of get the feel and the flavor of it. John is writing this mysterious letter as an encouragement to his friends in the churches, seven of them that we'll talk about over the next several weeks. Um, and, and it's important to remember, by the way, that this letter was written to them, so it made sense to them because they got the code, they got the mystery, they understood what he was doing, and they were challenged and encouraged by it. So the, I'm just going to read this first thing. We're going to look at chapter 1, beginning at verse, uh, verse 9. He says this, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. For the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see what I mean? <laughs> Mystery. All kinds of colliding images, all kinds of things moving uh, in and out and through, and it's going to get worse <laughs> as we go along here. But my hope is that you will receive the same encouragement from this letter landing as the churches did when they received it in the first place. John reminds us that he is our brother, our fellow partaker in uh, both the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance. He's hanging in there, which are in Jesus, uh, and is, as a result of the testimony to Jesus on Patmos, he is there in exile, and it's because of the word of the, of, of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. Notice, however, John does not say, I was on Patmos. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John is suggesting something to us in the middle of the mess. It's still possible for us, even though we're surrounded by our external circumstances, to nonetheless be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John is a worshiper, and so it does not matter where he is, Worship is his place of residence. His primary zip code is in the Spirit. And that's what he invites because now that gives us, you remember that list you constructed? Now that gives us a lens through which to look at that list of challenges, list of difficulties. They're, they're not going to go away maybe. They're not going to be marginalized or ignored either. But we want to look at them through the right lens. And then he's, he's going to write this letter to these seven churches that we'll be dealing with over the next several weeks. Um, he is given this command, and as he turns um, to see the voice, to see where this command is coming from, he is blown away by what he sees. He begins with this, seeing the seven gold lampstands, which we're going to hear later on, are the seven churches, the seven churches. And in the middle of the lampstands is the one that is like the Son of Man. Son of Man is an allusion to the book of Daniel, where Daniel has this vision of God present in glory. Uh, Ancient of days will get a, that image uh, uh, that he reflects a little bit later on. But the key I want you to notice here to begin with is, is where is Jesus in the middle of the mess? Where is Jesus with my list? Where is Jesus with the stuff that I'm going through? And John says his very first vision, I love this, is Jesus is right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of the mess. He's right with the church. He's present with us in the middle of whatever mess it is that we are in. Friends, if you hear nothing else from what we're going to talk about today, 
I need you to remember that. Wherever you are, Jesus is there. That's what incarnation means. He is present. And please notice now, the vision that arises out of that blows John away. He says, I have this vision of one like a son of man, this, this uh, image from, from Daniel's vision of, of God. You remember, it's Jesus' favorite self-designation, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and he is there by saying that he is with them God. But then, the, then it goes on and he has this, this robe that reaches his feet. And the language here signals two different kinds of robes. One is a high priest's robe. The other is the robe of the monarch, of the king. And these images speak of his exaltation. He is the great high priest. He is the intermediary. He is the go-betweener uh, in, 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 in the imagery of the high priest. But he is also the king of kings and lord of lords. This image is going to keep coming over and over again uh, as uh, John uh, kind of settles back on his heels for the wonder of what he's seeing. Around his waist is this belt, this golden sash, which signals his um, uh, authority. He has been given, remember, all authority. Heaven, earth, under the earth, all authority has been given to him, and it's signified by this golden sash uh, that is the, the sign and symbol of his authority. His head and hair are white, like wool. Again, Daniel's vision signaling one who has been around the block a few times, who knows what's what, who's the beginning he's going to identify himself, and the end, who's been, uh, who is this, this ancient of days, who is God, a symbol as well, we should probably notice, of wisdom. Jesus knows how to handle the crises that we are in, and this is part of the vision that John has. His eyes are like flame. And again, this, this, these are just, these, you see these colliding images, right? It, it's, it's this moving in and out. It, 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 it is impossible for us to describe what, how John is seeing this. But nonetheless, this eyes like flame of fire, pure, purifying, penetrating. Uh, and, and part of what John is getting there is that there is not a single thing that his eyes cannot penetrate. He knows, he sees, it's a penetrating gaze, not of destruction, not of judgment, but of compassion, of mercy, of knowing and noticing. And part of that means he sees everything with crystal clarity. When Jesus is later going to sit on the throne of judgment, it's not like he's not aware of the matters that he's going to be judging. He sees them. Unlike our modern-day judges who are influenced and need witnesses, he has no need of witnesses. He sees things as clearly as they can be seen himself. His feet are like burnished bronze. This, uh, 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 an awareness, again, of Daniel's vision of, of God, uh, where it's contrasted to Nebuchadnezzar, who has feet of clay which means when you put the weight of the, of, the, of the kingdom on Nebuchadnezzar's clay feet, guess what happens? They crumble. Not so Jesus. He has authority. His feet are burnished brass. He is stable and solid. Nobody's going to push him off his mark. He is established 
in this, in this role. He is able to sustain and provide foundation for his rule. And then one of my favorite images, if you've ever stood next to Niagara Falls or if you've ever stood next to the crashing of the surface, of the, of the surf on the, on, the, on the beach, or if you've ever uh, sat beside uh, a, a river as it, as it meandered uh, over the rocks, this image makes sense to you. His voice is like the sound of the rushing waters, roaring, tumbling, life-giving, cascading, that's the sound of his voice. Now, the reason John brings us into this fantastic vision of Jesus in the middle of the church, remember, is because he wants us to know that our present circumstances are not the definer of our reality. We need a big vision of God for the situations we're in. It parallels very much like Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter six, when all of his life was going sideways, he went to the temple and he had a vision of God, high and lifted up. That's exactly what John is doing here. He wants us, before he goes anywhere else, to get this sense that Jesus is competent, Jesus is capable, Jesus has capacity for the life that we are actually living. So you've got your list. Take it out. Is the Jesus you worship big enough for the list you hold? Is the, is the God you, you celebrate adequate for the moments that you feel crushed? The solution is not to diminish your list, but to expand your vision. The solution is not to marginalize God by looking at him through the lens of your list. The solution is to do what John does. Start to look at your list through the magnifying glass of a great, great God. Turn the telescope around and look through the end that gives you a bigger vision of who God is. Then you'll notice that the vision also ends with this idea that he is holding in his hand the seven stars. And out of his uh, mouth uh, comes a sharp two-edged sword. This idea of the seven stars uh, has, has a dual reference. Uh, one is the, the, the pastors, he's going to identify them, uh, of these seven churches, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about uh, over the next several weeks, as I said. But also, you may not know, but at that time, uh, they had discovered seven planets, two more were waiting to be discovered over the next uh, several years. So um, notice what he's saying here. In, in, an, in a culture that was soaked and saturated, people went to war based on the alignment of the stars. Astronomy was a big deal. And John wants you to know the stars don't control your destiny. Jesus holds the stars in his hands. He is the one in charge. They are not even predictive. They are obedient servants to the Lord and King of the universe. He holds them in his hands, but likewise, he holds the pastors, the messengers, the angels of the church. The word angel here 
in in the next part, next paragraph, is the Greek word for 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 messenger, the the one who brings the message, the spokesperson. We don't need to think of angels here as as the winged creatures that that are kind of uh, showing up at Christmas. Uh, these this particular image is of of the pastor, uh, and and brings us into that. Um, awareness that he holds them in his hand. But then he goes on and says that out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword, echoing what we read in in Hebrews, where the word of God is this two-edged sword that has the capacity to uh, slice and dice between, uh, you know, spirit and and soul and and body. But the, the, the key here is that this word is sharp and accurate, uh, and the two-edged sword, it's an interesting one. It's not the long, broad sword of combat. It's the short, carved um, uh, sword for, for close infighting. It's the same word, by the way, that Paul uses when he talks about the sword of the spirit that is needed in spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a defensive mechanism. Uh, anybody want to figure out what John's trying to signal there? <laughs> you want to stand solid, strong, and tall in the middle of the persecution? Get the word into your heart. Learn it. Memorize it. Take it with you because that will be useful for you in the close infighting when you're tempted, when you're tested, when you can't remember who you are. Attend to the word of the Lord. That two-edged sword will enable you in the close infighting to remember and to focus. So we see this, and then he has this image of his sun, his face shining like the noonday sun. This, this, this radiance, this echoes uh, Moses coming down off the mountain, having received the 10 words, right? And Moses is just glowing with the refracted glory, reflected glory that he has experienced in the, in the uh, presence of God. Well, Jesus isn't reflecting glory, he is emanating glory. He is not, because of his uh, proximity uh, to God, um, gathering up glory. He is God and is himself the source of this glory. And so this mark of blessing, as he lifts up his face in numbers, remember the blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face and make his face shine upon you. That's this. So you catch the image here that John is saying, guys, 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 I know you're in a horrible place. I know things are hard. I can't promise you they're going to get better anytime soon. But here's what I can promise you. You're not alone. Jesus is right in the middle of the mess with you. You need a big picture of a big God for the little list you've created. When John has this vision, you'll notice what happens. Verse 17, he falls at his feet. This is what awe does for you. He is overwhelmed at what he is seeing. And I love, love, love this next picture of Jesus. Here he is shining brighter than the noonday sun, this majestic robe, the burnished brass, the face glowing, right? And what does he do with his friend John? He puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, don't be afraid. I got this. I've got you. I'm the first 
and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and to Hades. So help me out here, my friend. Write down what you see. Write down what's going on now. Write down what's coming. But whatever, John, don't be afraid. We got this. I think it's important that we notice that Jesus is not first focused on what's going wrong in the world. He is focused on the church. His concern, brothers and sisters, is that we get our act together. And you'll notice in the letters that follow, he's going to be pretty direct, pretty blunt, and pretty bold. He's the Lord of the church. It might be worthwhile to take notes when the Lord of the church speaks to us. Why? Because Jesus knows. The church is the means by which, the, the, the media by which the word will come and the world will be saved. So that's my invitation to you. Uh, in a moment, we are going to go to communion, uh, to remember this risen Lord who was dead and is now alive forevermore, who has something to say to us, both of comfort, don't be afraid, I'm with you, but also in the following weeks of challenge. This is not the time to pray prayers of nostalgia. This is the time to say, where's the kingdom? I want to be part of it. And so I'm going to invite you as we close in prayer to consider that. Oh, Lord, thank you. I pray that you would help us to be as present to you in all your glory as you are present to us in all your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.